Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, I'm John Molesky, and this is America's 360, a podcast brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, while Pride Month celebrations are taking place across the U.S. and around the world, and while significant progress has been made throughout the Western Hemisphere regarding the rights and protections of LGBTQ plus individuals, We've also seen a backlash against that progress, and in too many cases, outright discrimination. With all of that in mind, today we're going to take the temperature of where LGBTQ plus rights stand across the region. So let's say hello to our panel. Welcome back, Wilson Center Distinguished Fellow, Cindy Arnson. Hi, John. Hey, Cindy. Latin American Program Director, Benjamin Gadan. Greetings, John. Benjamin, welcome back. Mexico Institute Director, Andrew Rudman. Hi, John. Andrew, always good to see you. And Canada Institute Director, Christopher Sands. Bonjour. Hi, John. Bonjour to you too, Chris. <laughs> and last but not least, Brazil Institute Director, Bruna Santos. Hey, Bruna. Hello. Okay, so I thought we could begin with just your general comments, oversight type comments, a survey of the region from the perspectives that you each are coming from. What jumps out at you when you think about LGBTQ plus rights in the Western Hemisphere? where we've seen progress, where we may be seeing some backsliding. And let's go in the in the order of introduction. The alphabetical order, Cindy Arnson, you're up first. Sure. Well, John, I think there's been a notable advance in the legal protections uh, for LGBTQ people in the region. Um, but there's a big gap between what exists on paper and what exists in practice. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later, the, the high levels of violence against LGBTQ people um, it, you know, it, it, the, the numbers are just appalling. So I think there is definitely um, a lot to uh, celebrate in the, um, you know, the adoption by legislatures all through the region of protections. Um, but the cultural, um, the way that this has filtered down into the culture, I think, remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Benjamin. Yeah, I think you understated, actually, John, when you say significant progress. I, mean, I think in many ways, this region has been a leader in, in LGBTQ plus rights. I mean, you've seen constitutions address not only broad issues of discrimination, but particularly discrimination against individuals in the LGBT community. You've seen uh progress on marriage equality. You know, it started in 2010 in Argentina, but recently even Chile, which is known as a relatively socially conservative country, saw its legislature approve same-sex marriage. Before that, you'd seen progress on, on civil unions. So actually, I'd describe the region as a leader in this area. Great. Thank you, Benjamin. Uh, Andrew? Yeah, I, I, I think I, I agree really with, with what both Cindy and, and Benjamin said. Um, there are some good laws on on the books. Mexico City legalized um, gay marriage also in 2010, and now uh, just last year, the last Mexican state to do that needed to do so legalized it. So you have so that's a that's uh, an opportunity available to to Mexicans uh, across the country. But there's lots of violence, as, as Cindy mentioned, against 
LGBTQ population. So I, I think it, like so many things, the laws are good on paper, but the question is the, the implementation and, and really the the cultural uh, the cultural response to those issues. Mm-hmm. Chris Sands. Well, well, Canada is is uh, pushing new ground. I think the, there has been a wider social acceptance for the LGBTQ community um, for some time. And what we've seen under Prime Minister Trudeau is an attempt to, just picking up what Andrew said, to have much more aggressive and enforceable rights that can be uh, enforced in court. They've also started gathering more data on the population in all the provinces so that it can be incorporated into an evidence-based approach to policymaking. So not only acknowledging uh, and securing rights for people, but also making sure that you have the data that can help you understand where the needs are, where the concentrations are, where some of the problems are. And uh, given that Canada has a healthcare system that has many different you know, provincial deliverers, the fact that the federal government is providing a sort of data envelope that everyone can use to better understand the population, including in the census, I think has really helped Canadian policymakers and activists understand better the challenges that they're facing. Thanks. Bruna. Yeah, I agree with uh, the assessments on the leadership of the region. I think that there are advancements in terms of legal protection. But in, in terms of Brazil, I think it's important to note that the, the National Congress has never approved any law favorable to the LGBTQ plus community. All the rights that uh, were won through um, throughout time, such as the right to marry, to marriage, the right to name, the criminalization of LGBTQ phobia, all that were achieved through judicial decisions. So I think that's a symptom of uh, how much we need to advance in that front in politics. And it's important to know that Brazil has elected a record number of candidates who openly identify as part of the community, um, especially in the legislative power. Um, we had uh, 18 lawmakers elected in the, la- in the last um, election, and that's a significant number. And I think it emphasizes the, um, something that I just mentioned, which is the, the need to have like policymakers engaged with that agenda. Cindy Arnson. Sure. I, I think that, you know, despite the progress that, that Bruna and Benjamin are referring to, there are some real pockets um, that remain uh, problematic. Let's just uh, to use a euphemistic word. Um, in Central America, Costa Rica is the only country that has on the books um, a law that uh, that allows for marriage equality for you know same sex unions, um, and in uh, in the Caribbean, major countries do not have laws have any laws protecting uh, the rights of LGBTQ people. So I think that um, you know uh, there are certainly some some subregions that lag behind uh, the rest of of the hemisphere. You know about that. Uh... Bruna and and Chris talked about tensions that may exist between a federal government and a regional or, or a local government or between the federal government or the legislature and the courts. Is that what we're seeing when we look across the region? Are there what Cindy just described, sort of pockets and, and areas you can point to where there's real progress and real tolerance and real advancement of rights, but then others that are pushing back in the opposite direction? Well, what I'd say, John, is that politics is not always helpful to this issue in parts of Latin America. Latin America, of course, has a rapidly growing evangelical community that is often hostile to LGBTQ 
plus rights and office holders or office seekers who are pandering to that community are sometimes resistant to these issues. I think that's true. And, you know, we've mentioned some of these figures, uh, Nayib Bukele in El Salvador, certainly Jair Bolsonaro, the last president of Brazil, would be in that category. So I think that helps explain a little bit about the different pace that you've seen on this issue and also, you know, differences in in national or, or municipal approaches. You know, something Benjamin said up front in his first response about how I may have understated progress, the notion of progress. And it's funny you bring that up because as I was working on my script for the open, I was thinking about the fact that there are so many negative things to point to right now, uh, outright public discrimination or or bigotry, and, and then sometimes escalating to violence. On the other hand, if you look at any group, not just LGBTQ plus community, there's been amazing progress over the course of decades. So when you look at the region over the course of the last 10, over the last 20 years, even with the problems that we're not going to ignore, I'm guessing all of you see amazing progress. Well, John, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, I, I yes, I think that's true. There's amazing progress because if we think back 10 or, or 15, 20 years when when marriage equality didn't exist, uh, you know, there are certainly a lot of changes. But when we when we look at society, and, and I would include the United States in that as well, you still do see, as Cindy said, pockets um, of, of groups of people um, who who haven't gotten the message and continue to to use slurs. I mean, I you know, I'm sorry to in a sense to bring it up, but, you know, you have to look at the example of, of Mexican soccer fans that, um, you know, make a practice of yelling homophobic slurs in the games to the point that um, the national team has been sanctioned multiple times. They've had to play qualifier matches in empty stadiums. Uh, the U.S. and Mexico last played soccer uh, earlier this month in Las Vegas, and the match was called early because that was the the third warning from the refs about the behavior of the fans. So I think, you know, we want to celebrate the the advances and encourage it. But I think the truth is there's a big difference between what's on paper and the way people behave in our society. You know, uh, Chris, I saw these uh, reports out of New Brunswick where parents and advocates talking about U.S. style culture war, accusing the other side of en- engaging in U.S. Not a great uh, uh, thing to the U- for the U.S. to own, right? But uh, uh, about that, uh, is are we seeing that across the region? The types of culture wars we're seeing in the U.S. around this issue and others. Uh, certainly in Canada, the New Brunswick story is very interesting because it's similar in some ways to a. Uh, uh, an issue that Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, used to win his election because it pitted LGBTQ issues against parental rights in primary and secondary education. And we're seeing that debate in a lot of places. That debate, like most school debates, could be local and could be between neighbors and having conversations about real things. But the accusation of culture wars comes because of politicians who amp this up and make it a broader debate in which a community which is trying to find a compromise is is suddenly torn between quite polar opposite views. And I think it's a characteristic of our polarized politics in the U.S., but also in Canada, that this happened. What's interesting is that in the U.S., it's often considered to be the right that is pushing and polarizing 
that's often said. In Canada, it's actually been Prime Minister Trudeau, who is a great advocate, but primary and secondary education is a provincial responsibility. And the premier in New Brunswick, Blaine Higgs, is trying to find a compromise of reasonable consent. And the prime minister is weighing in and calling people homophobic and backward. Now, it's true. Blaine Higgs is conservative and the prime minister is liberal and there's a politics there. But it's an interesting thing that the temptation of culture war politics is so great that even politicians uh, of every stripe might find themselves tempted to it just to win a point on this issue rather than to try to make a difference for people and families. Bruna, I know there's something you want to talk about, and I, I want to. It's important stuff that I want to get to you on. But before we move to that, I want to just follow up on what we've just been talking about. This notion of culture wars, because I think it'll be interesting for our listeners to kind of understand if how does this apply across the region in other countries. Chris just gave us the the take from Canada. What else do we see around this issue of LGBTQ plus rights? Are the uh, is there a one to one? comparison between the types of culture wars we're engaging in the U.S. and other countries in South or Central America or in Mexico? I mean, I'd say this, John. I mean, certainly I think some of those dynamics are at play. And and fortunately, as Bruna has pointed out in terms of Brazil, it's often courts that have stepped in. And so it takes the issue away from the day-to-day partisan and ideological battles taking place on talk radio and into the hands of jurists who I think in general have ruled on behalf of expanding rights. If you look, for example, in 2018, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights found that for the entire region, which basically all participates in, in the court's treaty, that same-sex marriage was a right that had to be enforced and accepted throughout the hemisphere. And then even in the Caribbean, where governments themselves are the most reluctant on these issues, just in recent months, you've seen three major court rulings, including in Barbados, that decriminalize homosexual acts in consensual same-sex relationships. So I, I would say to you, yes, it has been an issue. And fortunately, courts in many places have taken on the role of advancing these rights so that they are less subject to those partisan dynamics. So, Bruna, you know, it's said that love is love, but it also hate is hate, right? So we're focused on LGBTQ plus rights in honor of Pride Month, uh, recognition of Pride Month, but they're, they're spillover, right? The same people who are engaged in hateful activity around this issue don't just stop there. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there is, uh, we have to take into consideration the intersection of um, those crime rates, violence, and um, also the intersection of misogyny, racism, xenophobia, and hate crimes in this issue. So uh, when you look at the data, you see clearly that um, the majority of homicides in the trans community, for example, are happening with Black individuals. And it reveals uh, ethnic uh, practice, practices that are extremely um that references to dehumanization of um, of this, like the society. There is a, a practices like carbonization, stoning, um, decapitation, like things that are really um, dehumanizing. That are happening with this community. And another thing that uh, and uh, Andrew has has talked about is about the data. How you collect that? It's really unclear for everyone who look into the data in Brazil of violence against the LGBTQ community, what uh, what is actually the data of violence targeting this community, death of this community? It's really uneven across the, the database is how people identify. And finally, I want to mention the, the problem of political violence, 
We have one very emblematic case in Brazil of, of Marielle Franco, who was a queer Afro-Latina Brazilian politician who is an activist for LGBTQ plus rights and was assassinated. And she was is just one example of people who are like uh, fighting for uh you know, progressive agenda for rights of this community and are being attacked constantly. So I think that there is still, of course, we had advancements, but there is still a lot to a lot to to do to get there. You know, there's no clear dividing line between culture and politics or, or the courts. It's all it all overlaps. I think of the fact that in the United States, we saw public opinion polling that there was broad-based support for same-sex marriage before politicians and the courts caught up. Uh, what are we seeing as far as the cultural context in that regard? Are, are there? Can you point out the discrepancies between where the populace is versus where the political leadership is in this regard? I'd, I'd say two things, John. I mean, one is typically we try not to subject minority rights to majority polling or or voting, um, just as sort of a matter of principle. And that's why even though there are kind of dangers of backlash when policy, you know, advances well beyond public opinion, I think in general, that's sort of best practice, right? Not to, to subject the these rights to you know, popularity contest. That that said, obviously, look, these dynamics matter and, and broad public acceptance matters for the implementation of these rules, their broad acceptance, so that they don't just exist on paper, as, as my colleagues here have pointed out earlier. And in that sense, I think it's nice when you see younger voters, for example, having much broader views about these rights than, than perhaps some of their older predecessors. In places like Argentina, for example, you see the youthful opinion on these issues being well advanced of of other generations. And I think naturally that will mean that politics will follow the changing opinion. Is it is there universality in that regard? Are, are young people around the world, not just in the Western Hemisphere, leading the charge toward change and a more inclusive, more tolerant society? I don't, John, I don't, I don't have any, any hard data, but that's certainly, yeah, <laughs> I, I would certainly uh, suggest that, that that's probably what, what happens. Just thinking about, you know, the interactions that, that I've had and that others have, and, and probably traditionally, they, I think younger people tend to, to push the envelope and, and ask questions, right? And we get older, we get more conservative, more set in our ways. So I think that's likely to be the move. I think that probably the data we'd look at might be voting trends, right? That would be one. And and what do the trend lines tell us in this regard? I mean, again, it depends where you're looking. You know, Sydney makes uh, the point and Bruno makes the point uh, more than once about there are some really harsh realities out there, ugliness, and, and goes beyond that. That's an understatement. We're talking about violence, and often that results in, in death. Uh, on the other hand, you've all talked about, we've talked about the amazing amount of progress that's been made, and these two things live in the same space. Is it, are you able to identify clear trend lines where this is headed? In other words, is the violence a last gasp of an a more, a less tolerant time? Or do we really see a threat of backsliding to a time where people are experiencing or enjoying less rights rather than more rights? I mean, I'll just give one quick example. It's anecdotal, but I think it's symbolic, which is the president of Chile, who was elected and he was 35 years old when he was voted in. And he comes from the kind of youthful leftist 
um, movement that takes these issues very seriously and sees them as much more important than what used to animate the kind of youthful Latin American left, which was kind of anti-imperialism and the romanticism of the Soviet Union. Instead, it's rights. It's women's rights. It's you know gender equality. It's environmental liberties and it's LGBTQ plus rights. And I see him as kind of an avatar of what is the future of, of these issues um, amongst younger generations in Latin America. John, I'd, I'd say in the, in the Canadian case, you know, the, de- the debate evolves and you, you haven't seen as much on the violence side, but it's a question of where the parameters of this debate are going to go. So in the New Brunswick case, it's about what are we telling children below the level of high school and when do they get to make decisions about their uh, identity, and especially when that comes to an identity that involves uh, a medical procedure. And do we consider them minors or not? And how much do parents get involved in that? We've had debates about uh, we've had debates about abortion. We've had debates about rights to to be in certain places. And I think the younger voters are are definitely driving that uh, that forward. But we're having conversations about who pays for this and how how disruptive can outsiders be in a local community? What's to use an old phrase that's familiar in Latin America as well, what's the subsidiarity? Where does the decision get made in a society and how should it be handled? And I think there's a great tension between sort of a universalism, that these are rights, they should be universal and widely respected, but also communities that have, for different reasons, different uh, perspectives on the debate. And so I think that makes the debate richer. Maybe it pits young versus old. Maybe it puts a more traditional region against a more progressive region, religious people versus non-religious people. But that's just part of the evolution of the debate. And if we can push violence and hate to the margins, we'll still have a very interesting debate about what it is we do together. That's what government's all about. And who's going to pay for it? Also very important. And I, I don't think the existence of the debate is itself a problem. It's when the debate spills out of a reasonable ability for a democracy to handle it and becomes an issue that's trying to be decided by violence mm-hmm. or or by extremism. So we are moving into our final minutes. And I, I want if any of you have any more thoughts on the question of where the trend lines are headed, we'd love to hear that. But any other closing thoughts, things we haven't discussed just yet that you'd like to add to the discussion? I'd like to jump in and say that there's some interesting parallels between um, the the push to ha- to expand LGBTQ rights um, and the push by women's organizations on the in the main um, on abortion rights. And there are countries. There's a very very close correlation between the strict prohibition on abortion in any. Um, instance, even to save the life of the mother in cases of rape um, in several Central American countries, also in the Dominican Republic, um, as opposed to, you know, a country like Colombia that um, allows for uh, choice, you know, based on a woman's desire. Um, And then in between that, there are a lot of countries, including Brazil, that will allow for abortion only in the case of um, of rape, other times only in the case to save the life of the mother. And I think this points to the, the sort of historical weight of the Catholic Church um, over several centuries, um, as well as the growth of evangelical churches. But I, but I see that, you know, the women's rights and the women's equality and LGBTQ equality as um, sort of parallel tracks, you know, headed in more or less in the same direction. Um, And there's, you know, still a lot of work to be done in in both regards. 
Thank you, Cindy. Any other final thoughts? Bruna, please. I'd like to add to that uh, the fact that we see emerging or better organized today in the political um, sphere in Brazil, um, like evangelical political pressure groups. And they are getting more and more organized. And of course, during the Bolsonaro administration, they they had the whole executive branch like looking into those um, creating moral panic around questioning um, the laws uh, defending um, any progress to the LGBTQ community. And this this group no longer has the the president there, but they are were very It's a very significant group. They of course voted for Bolsonaro, and they are very significant in the in Congress. And above everything, they are always engaging in cultural threats. I don't call that a cultural war because I think it's very different than, than what happens in the U.S. But they are forming new space for political participations with new religious support, and they use they use a lot the internet and social networks and social in harassment through the internet with to engage with with this agenda. So I think that's something that's new to all of us. How this uh, religious groups and they are very conservative and they are looking to like um, to avoid advancements. In, in in that agenda, I think it's a, one thing that we should observe closely in the in the future in Latin America. Thanks, uh, Cindy. I think you wanted to add something, and then Benjamin will turn to you. Just in uh, in in the last days, we've seen um, a presidential election in Guatemala, and there was a very surprising result, which is that um, a, a candidate Bernardo Arevalo from a movement called Semilla Seed um, is making it into the second round, and almost immediately. There have been campaigns on social media and and uh, in in other ways um, to link Arevalo, calling him a, a communist, link his party to the push for LGBTQ rights. Uh, Guatemala is a country with a large um, community um, of evangelicals, and these are very targeted appeals to discredit him based on those issues. Benjamin. Yeah, I wouldn't discount the possibility of backlash. And I think there's plenty America's of evidence for it. Cindy has pointed out the dynamics of Guatemala, infamously in Colombia in 2016, the historic peace agreement lost this major referendum in part because of conservative concerns about gay rights and something that there was for another episode. But I do think, in general, the region is moving in the direction of expanding rights. And if you don't believe me, you know, look no further than tourism data. There's a thriving LGBTQ plus tourism sector in lots of countries in Latin America, you know, famously in Uruguay and Argentina and elsewhere. And that only happens when members of that community feel protected, safe, and more than that, welcome and, and recruited um, to be there on vacation and, and enjoy the, the region. And so I think that's hard evidence that the perception, at least of the region, really is improving in this regard. And of course, of course, we believe you, Benjamin. Why would you think otherwise? And our, as our resident uh, optimist, I know, you know, the, let's face it, the glass is both half full and half empty, but it's nice to end on the half full note. Uh, thank you for this discussion. Thank you for all, as always, for sharing your insights and knowledge with uh, me and with our listeners. This episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Zavi Delgado, and Aldrin Ballesteros with the assistance from Isabella Steiner, Gabriel Vasconcelos, and Facundo Robles. Uh, for more episodes of this podcast and others, you can visit wilsoncenter.org, where you'll find lots of valuable content on a world of topics and all of the programs that our panelists represent. 
So thank you again for joining us. We'll see you soon with another episode of America's 360. Until then, for all of us at the center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for your time and interest.